Chapter Seven of A King in Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. A King in Babylon by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Seven. Half an hour later, I came across Jimmy Allen scrooched up on a seat in one corner of the smoking room and looking so utterly miserable that I stopped for a word of comfort. He moved over silently as I sat down. Oh, cheer up! I said. "'It's the way she looked at me,' said Jimmy piteously. "'I can't forget it. You saw it?' "'Yes,' I admitted. "'I never had a woman look at me like that before.' "'No,' I said. "'You've been used to RSVP eyes and all that. "'The trouble with you is that you've been spoiled.' "'She looked at me as though she hated me,' he went on, not heeding me. "'By heaven, she does hate me.' "'Nonsense,' I said. "'It was just nerves. "'I've been talking to her. "'She has been working too hard, and you startled her.' "'What is there about me to startle her?' Jimmy demanded. "'I'm sure I don't know,' I said. "'Neither does she. She laughs at it now.' "'Well, I can't laugh at it,' said Jimmy bitterly. "'I never thought that any woman would look at me like that, "'as though I had done her some deadly injury, something too horrible for words.' "'Oh, piffle!' I protested. "'Forget it. She's crazy about the picture.' At the thought of the picture, Jimmy groaned softly. "'So am I,' he said. "'Or at least I was. And she's the type.' the absolute type, and you've only to look at her to see that she can act. But she won't do it with me, that's evident enough. I'm not going to hold Creel to the contract. I'll tell him tonight, and I'll drop off at the first place the boat touches. Oh, no, you won't, I said. You can't throw Creel that way, not after all he's done for you. Throw him, echoed Jimmy. Good God, man, I'm not going to throw him. I'm going to save him. It's the greatest idea for a picture I ever heard of, and with that woman it will be a glorious success. Well, it will be two glorious successes with both of you, I said. Come on, and get ready for dinner. You'll find that Mademoiselle Roland has forgotten all about it. Jimmy looked at me with those big burning eyes of his, and there was a sort of piteous entreaty in them, as though he'd give his soul to believe but couldn't. Do you really think so? he asked. I know so. I answered, as convincingly as I could. Look here, Jimmy, I'm in earnest about this. I thought you reminded her of someone she didn't like, but it wasn't even that. It was just a case of nerves, I tell you, of overwork and excitement. She's been having a hard time recently. Now come on. He got up slowly and went to his cabin, and I could only hope that I had helped him to forget his troubles, but I didn't blame him for being downhearted. I'd have been downhearted if any girl had looked at me as Mademoiselle Roland had looked at him. I couldn't forget that look. There was something back of it. Something more than nerves. Creel had secured a separate table for us at one side of the saloon, and he and his wife were already there when I arrived. Then Digby came in, and then Molly, who slid into her seat without so much as glancing my way. Finally Jimmy arrived, and I saw that he had made an exceedingly careful toilette, and we all dallied with the soup and tried to chatter unconcernedly, though we were all wondering whether she would come, and if she did come, what would happen. It may be that we were expecting some sort of melodramatic entrance, but she came in quite simply and naturally, as any young girl would, looking perfectly gorgeous in a dinner gown of some soft black material, which clung round her like foam. I had never seen such arms, such shoulders, such a neck, neither, I judged, had anyone else in the room, from the way they stared, and her eyes, the way they shone. When Jimmy saw her, he gave one glance, and then half started from his seat as though he was going to make a break for it but he thought better of it and went on with his soup. I could hear his spoon rattling against his plate. "'I am late,' she said. "'A thousand pardons.' 
and then she seated herself, and the steward swung her around to the table, and she smiled upon all of us. I lie down for a nap, she went on, and I oversleep. I have been working too hard. Yes, that is it. For the first time I find that I have nerves. It was that, Monsieur Alain, which caused that small contretemps, which I remember with shame, and which I hope you will forget. It was said gracefully and lightly, though I knew somehow that she had rehearsed the speech in her stateroom before she came up to us, and there was no denying that her smile tightened a little, in spite of her, when she met Jimmy's hungry gaze. It was hungry. There is no other word to describe it. "'That is kind of you, Mademoiselle Roland,' he said with a long sigh of relief. He made no effort to suppress. "'Of course I shall forget it. I was afraid—I was afraid—' He stopped, seemingly unable to find the proper words, and Mademoiselle Roland dismissed the subject with a little wave of her hand. "'And you, Miss Adams,' she went on, "'you have had a pleasant afternoon, I trust?' "'Oh, delightful,' said Molly shortly. I looked at her in astonishment. I had never before known Molly to be rude to anyone but myself, but Mademoiselle Roland seemed not to notice. "'As for me,' she said, "'I have had a conversation the most delicious with Beelie, and she smiled at me, in a way that made my head swim.' I have unburdened my heart to him. I have told him the story of my life, something I have never before done with a man, at least upon first meeting. But I feel that I have known Belie for a long time, that we are old friends. You American men are like that. One looks at them, and one knows them. Well, look at me, my dear, said Creel, and don't waste that sweetness on Billy. He's an unappreciative young cub. Besides, he's in love with another girl. If looks could kill, Creel would have been shriveled to an ash by the glance Molly cast at him. "'As for me—oh, oh!' cried Mademoiselle Roland, looking at me with round eyes, as though she had never suspected such a thing. "'Yes, I can see it is true. He shall tell me about her, and I shall try to make him less lonely. But you, Monsieur Creel, also—oh, I'm married,' said Creel, "'to an angel, but that hasn't destroyed my eye for beauty, thank God.' "'Rather enhanced it,' put in Ma Creel. "'Go ahead, Miss Roland. I like him to be amused. Only remember he's Irish.' "'Are Irishmen so dangerous?' Creel laughed. "'No,' he assured her. "'On the contrary. My wife means that my bark is far worse than my bite, and that I do a lot of talking through my hat. Get Billy to translate that into English for you,' he added, laughing again at her stare of perplexity. "'But I am perfectly serious when I say that it is a stunning gown you have on. I must arrange a scene in which you can wear it.' And then he told her that her Egyptian gowns were ready except for a little fitting, which Ma Creel would attend to before we reached Port Said. And then she and Ma Creel arranged for the fittings, and Ma Creel described the gowns to her in words unbelievably technical, while she nodded and clapped her hands like a little girl. And I was so busy watching her that I almost forgot to eat. I happened to glance at Jimmy Allen presently and saw that he had forgotten to eat, too, though he looked hungry enough, heaven knows, but not for food and he never said a word, just sat there drinking in every word and every gesture like a famished man, though she never glanced at him. I tried to talk with Molly after a while, but she answered only with grunts when she took the trouble to answer at all, and hurried through her meal, and excused herself and made a dash for the door. If it had been our first day out, I'd have thought she was seasick, but when I saw one of the officers leave his coffee untasted and dash after her, I understood. Really, I was disgusted with Molly." When I got out to the deck I found her leaning over the rail, with the uniform beside her, staring out at the sea, looking very lovely and sentimental. It made me sick to think of all I had planned for this voyage, and the way it had turned out. I walked around the deck, thinking I might find Mademoiselle Roland, and persuade her to comfort me a little, but I only saw Ma Creel and Digby. They were talking over old times, as usual. 
They were all together in a circus once, Creel and Digby as clowns, and Ma Creel as wardrobe mistress. And every so often they got to longing for the smell of the sawdust, the way circus people always do. Digby was a splendid old boy, and I feel I haven't done him justice in this story, but all the time he was somehow outside of it, just looking on. Most of the passengers on board were British officers on their way to join their commands somewhere in the east. A good many of them were returning, after being invalided, home, wounded, and, of course, they were full of their experiences, and so everybody crowded into the smoking-room, which fairly sizzled with war-talk and submarine-talk. There were actually two or three of them who had been submarined and lived to tell the tale, and what I had heard on the subject across the Atlantic wasn't a circumstance to what I heard now. The Mediterranean, it seemed, was swarming with U-boats, and they were making a special effort to get the liners. A sister-ship of the one we were on had been sunk a week or so before, with a loss of eighty lives. It was well known that the Germans had sworn to get our boat, too. The pessimists were sure they would get it, probably on this voyage. Others, more optimistic, pinned their faith on the big naval gun mounted at the stern, with a crew always on duty. Life-preservers were much in evidence, and I need hardly say that the precautions against a ray of light betraying us at night were even more stringent than on the caserta. They were so stringent, in fact, that the air in the smoking-room finally became unbreathable, and I went out to take another look for Mademoiselle Roland. But by this time it was dark as a pocket on the deck, and after blundering into two or three people and falling over somebody's feet, I was about to give up and go to bed when some impulse caused me to stick my head into the saloon, and there was Creel and Jimmy and the girl in one corner, with Creel waving his hands and talking. I drifted up, casual-like, and as he nodded and didn't tell me to go away, I sat down and listened. He was talking about the picture, of course, and there was a pile of criss-crossed manuscript on the table in front of him. "'The first time you see her,' he was saying to Jimmy, "'is in the slave market.' She's a princess, has been captured somewhere in the interior. We'll show the raid on the village and the death of her father defending her and all that, of course. Digby can do the father. And then she is dragged away and brought down the river and put on the slave market. As you happen to be passing through, you see her in chains, half-naked and mad enough to kill herself, ready to, in fact, the first chance she gets, because she knows perfectly well the fate in store for her. We'll get a great scene out of that first meeting. Jimmy's eyes were glowing. "'I oughtn't to see her in the slave market,' he said. "'A princess would never be offered for sale like that, "'not until the king had had a chance at her. "'How would this do? "'I've sent one of my generals to conquer her father, "'who is an independent old scout, "'and has given me a lot of trouble. "'And my general kills the old king by treachery "'and takes his daughter captive, "'and brings her to me as a sort of offering. "'And I can tell by the way she looks at me "'when she is brought in that she isn't conquered, "'and it occurs to me that it would be a pleasant "'and exciting game to break her spirit.' So I order her away to the harem and get me a whip, a particularly heavy, savage whip, which will cut her flesh to ribbons. Great, broke in Creel. Don't you think that's better? he added, turning to the girl. She was staring at Jimmy with wide-open eyes, in which I saw again that look of horror. Jimmy saw it, too, and went as pale as ivory. If Mademoiselle Roland prefers it the other way, he stammered. But the look had passed, and she was herself again in an instant, though her face, too, was very pale. "'Oh, no,' she said quickly. "'Your idea is splendid. "'It sounds as though—as though it might have happened.' "'That's just it,' said Creel. "'That's just the way it struck me, and that's the way I'll fix it. "'Now the next scene—' Mademoiselle Roland passed her hand wearily before her eyes. "'If you don't mind,' she began. "'Of course not,' Creel broke in. "'I forgot you were tired. Forgive me. "'We've plenty of time to work it out. "'Then,' she said, "'if you are sure you do not mind, I think I will go to bed.' We bade her good-night and watched her as she disappeared through the door. Then Creel waved us away. 
"'You two boys run along,' he said, and turned to his manuscript. Jimmy was very silent as we walked back along the deck together. "'Did you see it?' he asked at last. "'See what?' I demanded. "'That look,' he said. "'Of course I saw it,' I said savagely. "'She was feeling the scene. "'She's an actress through and through, full of temperament. "'That's the way she'll look at you when you order her to the harem.' I didn't really believe it. I felt there was something back of it I didn't understand. But it wouldn't do to let Jimmy think so. So I rattled on as convincingly as I could. At the end, Jimmy shook his head doubtfully. Maybe you're right, he said at last. But I have a feeling. He stopped and seemed to ponder something at the back of his mind. Then he shook his head again. No, it's impossible, he said. What's impossible? I asked. That I should have met her before, he answered, and stalked away to his room without bidding me good night. End of chapter 7